of my way. Get get out of my way. Yeah. Get out of my way. Welcome to Level with Emily. This is a conversation with composer Peter Chapman about his music for Workin' Moms, which is actually a Netflix comedy, not a game, although we talk about games too because he's done a bunch of those. But Workin' Moms is a comedy about a mom and her friends in Toronto and the challenges that they face as working mothers. The final season just aired on Netflix in April 2023. With regards to games, Peter scored Guacamole 1 and 2. Uh, he's done Little Big Planet Karting, Russian Subway Dogs, which is fantastic. Fantastic! If you haven't heard that soundtrack, you've got to check that out and many other gaming projects as well. Um, but if you watched Winona Earp, you'd be familiar with his music because he scored that TV show and he's done many other TV shows, films and ads. But as I mentioned, we primarily talk about working moms. We do talk about guacamole and uh, a bunch of other projects, including one he did out of boredom called Daft Science, which is a set of Beastie Boy remixes using only Daft Punk samples. There's a video of this chat on YouTube. Join us on Discord. That link is in the show notes. And if you can support us on Patreon, that'd be fabulous. Patreon.com slash level. All right. Here's Peter Chapman talking about his music for Working Moms. Yeah, so Working Moms, um, it was a production that ran for seven seasons detailing the precarious balance that mothers tend to feel when um, when raising children, uh, sort of ba- balancing between their personal lives, their work lives, and their family lives. Um, but it's done with a very comedic twist, so it's not a... Yeah. It's not. It's not a straightforward drama. It's very funny, and I would actually. One of the things I loved about the show is I found every season that went on, it just got weirder and weirder and funnier, and the writers just started. Like season one felt like it had a little bit more of a, you know, like a little bit more of a sincere message, and I, I mean that message was there throughout the whole series, but by season seven, it was just chaos. It was hilarious <laughs> and insane and weird, and just got so bizarre. I think yeah. at that point it's just the writers trying to entertain themselves. But yeah, that's that's the gist of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I scored it alongside uh, Maylee Todd, who is an actually an old friend of mine. Uh, we were neighbors and friends, and mm. I think we may have played in some bands together at some point. Um, and when this project came up, uh, it just seemed like a really good fit to work together. Yeah, because the music is... First of all, especially in the the earlier seasons, which is where I was able to focus most of my attention, um, so please let me know how the music evolves over the seasons. But but in those Absolutely. earlier seasons, it's a lot of snippets with just super high energy and a lot of like um, hand percussion or maybe not hand percussion, but just a simple texture, right? And mm-hmm. then melee with yep. cool voice stuff. Talk to me about coming up with that concept and and how how you got there. So it was interesting. Season one of Work and Moms, I think 
<clears throat> no one has ever gone on record as saying this, but I, my general understanding was that when that show was in uh, was in production, the original idea was not to have a composer. They were going to license music exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that, you know, there that is a very expensive way to score a television show, especially yeah. if you want to, you know, some A-list needle drops. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they, they dug a lot into the indie rock stuff, but I was brought on kind of as a, Romaley and I were brought on kind of as like a contingency plan uh, to sort of fill oh, in the spots where mm-hmm. they didn't necessarily want to put in a needle drop. But as the seasons went on, you know, like season one, episode one, I had like maybe two cues. Like it wasn't like a big, or like yeah. maybe five, like like very few. Um, by the end of season seven, I was clocking like 25 cues, 30 cues an episode. Okay. Um, so as the series went on, uh, Maylee and I started doing a lot more of the heavy lifting, which allowed them to spend their money on some like pretty awesome bangers you know they they licensed like wu-tang clan and the doobie brothers like they they went hard on that end which was really great yeah and it was also awesome because it allowed Maylee and i to really develop a sound of the show mm-hmm. which you know if you again if you go to season one you, you hear it a little bit right and then you hear a lot more of it in season two and then more like a lot more in season three and then by season yeah. four we're like fully just like going hard on the show so the way the sound of the show came about we we really struggled for, I remember there was about a month where we were just like writing demos and writing demos and Catherine Reitman and her, and her partner, Phil, they, they both have great taste in music and very um, deep taste in music. Mm-hmm. They were throwing some really cool, you know, indie rock deep cuts at us of, you know, to, to demonstrate different elements of music that they liked and what they wanted. But there were a couple of tracks that really in, like captured the essence of what they wanted. There was a Tune Yards track, mm. and there was a track by, I think it was Charlie XX, I think. And it encapsulated this really, um, there was like acapella elements in the Tune Yard track, and there were there's this real aggressive sort of punk rock cheerleader vocal treatment in the Charlie XX track. Um, and I think the two of those became kind of a real uh, stepping stone for the sound of the show. So what we started doing is um, we created a really, uh, a lot of like found percussion. So none of, there's very, very seldom do you ever hear like a kick drum and a snare drum like that kind of stuff doesn't happen much in the show it's a lot of um you know hand claps banging on things pieces of wood being smacked together lots of weird percussion like if if you looked at my template there's almost nothing normal in there and it's all (laughs) sort of weird custom stuff that i built oh cool and then we and then we mixed that with uh with Maylee Todd's vocals. And so in season one, she would come over. This is when she was, when she lived really close, she would come over a couple times a week and she would add these elements to the cues. But then what we ended up doing is creating this huge library of 
like Mealy Todd, I had like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of samples of her just yelling stuff and shouting things and singing things and all these just sort of train of thought vocal lines that she would come up with. Um, and then some of them were on my hard drive, but most of them were actually mapped to my keyboard. So I could just sit there and, and play her vocals. Yep. Then we would chop them all up and stuff. So the general kind of approach was this high energy punk rock vocal, but then treated in a very kind of hip hop way with found sound percussion that yeah. was also uh, written and in, in very based in, in kind of hip hop, um, which is what I kind of grew up producing. So it, right. it, it was a very natural thing for me to, to do. But then it was funny because then then there were these other cues that were very um, soulful and garage rock, um, kind of bluesy garage rock uh, style cues with her singing on them. And then there were also a lot of more very like earnest sentimental cues, which would be acoustic guitar, ukulele, uh, like vibraphone, and, and her vocals on top of that. So there were sort of like three styles of cue if you watch the show. Um, and then as the seasons went on, I spent a lot of time listening to a lot of pop music that was coming out and I was kind of nicking little ideas. Like I'd listen to something and be like, oh, that's a cool bass sound. I want to incorporate that into the score mm -hmm. because there was a point where I remember the show, we'd been working on the show for a while and I was like, you know, a lot of our influences that we're referencing are like five, six years old, you know, mm -hmm. like I don't want this show to sound like it's a five or six year old show. I want every season to sound contemporary. So I was yeah. constantly listening to a lot of um, modern pop and, and kind of stealing little, little sure. things being like, Oh, that's a cool little thing. That's a neat rhythmic idea. That's a cool vocal concept, you know, and stuff like that. This one's for the brave, one's for the bold, one's for the hard ass mother. Oh my! This one's for the brave, this one's for the bold, this one's for the hard ass mother. Uh. This one's for the brave, this one's for the bold, this one's for the hard ass mother. Fine word. This one's for the brave, this one's for the bold, this one's for the hard ass mother. I did listen to an interview. Um, that you did, uh, but I think it was just a year or two ago, but that's beside the point. The point that I want to make is that one of the <laughs> things you talk about in there is how when you like worked at a keyboard store or maybe your dad ran some, some kind of thing like that and the old guys would come in and play Van Halen on the keyboards <laughs> and how you didn't want to yeah. sound old. So, and, and I loved that because I spent time working in a music store too and, you know, everybody comes in oh, and plays awesome. Stairway. I mean, this was so many decades ago now, but it's, it's uh, I, I know that vibe of, and you can almost mm -hmm. see it when they walk in the door. Yeah. <laughs> Who's going to sit down and do it? And so I wonder if... Um, 
you know, that plays into your desire to keep things contemporary too, if that's like a piece of that that drives you to be listening to modern music all the time? Absolutely. I think that made, that created an awareness that that can happen. It created yeah. an awareness that if you're not careful, <laughs> and I know this about myself, you know, I'm, I'm 42. There's, it does take a little bit of effort for me to, you know, reach out into new music land because, yeah, you know, if it was up to me, I would just I would just listen to Beck and the Beastie Boys all the time and I'd be happy for the rest of my life. But, you know, but I, I constantly want to hear what new artists are doing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and I mean, honestly, Spotify has been incredible for that. But but also, yeah. you know, Spotify has made it like musical trends come and go in a month now. Like, it's just like, yeah. wham, and then it's over and then wham, and then it's over where it used to be, you know, you'd get a good five years out of right. something. and. Yeah. And now it's just like, like by the time you've heard it, it's, you know, I have nieces that I'm always bugging. I'm like, what are you listening to? Can I see your playlists? What do you, what do you got on there? You know, like I'm constantly trying to like, I used to do it to my, my, uh, my wife's little cousins who were quite a bit younger, but now they're even kind of too old for me to, <laughs> to, to, to bug for yeah, new yeah. influences, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, that's so fascinating. But uh, to, to circle back to work and moms that, that's a really wise move to keep the show fresh, you know, to be have your finger on that pulse. There is a real, I mean, as a composer, there's, there is like a fear of, you know, you don't want to become the old uncool guy. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to be that guy. And that's, yeah. you know, I've seen that happen to a few people and, but I also think that it happens because you get set in your ways and you're not willing to evolve and listen to music and mm-hmm. figure out new approaches. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the reasons I also love constantly working on stuff is because you can constantly, it forces you to go out and mm-hmm. and, and check out new scores. Like even, you know, when we were working on uh, uh, Winona Earp, I would, I would go running every morning and listen to a new film score every day some of them old, some of them new, a lot of contemporary stuff, because that was a very contemporary score. And again, similar, like I'd be constantly like nicking little ideas, like, oh, that's a neat, yeah, that's a neat thing they did. I want to do that. That's a cool idea. I want to try, I want to figure out my version of that, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I'm constantly, I'm very much like, you know, music in ideas out. Like I, I like to keep that, uh, that cycle fresh. Sure, sure. And you've done, and we'll come back to working moms too, because uh, I have mm-hmm. more questions about it. But um, absolutely, uh, you've done so many different things too. You know, you've done a lot of ad work. You've done obviously film, obviously TV, obviously games, and probably more things I'm not aware of. So, um, you know, I guess I'd just love to kind of explore that place for you and what what you like about doing a little bit of everything? Um, because it sounds like you do, like you don't want to just be TV or just, you know, one thing. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. You know, I think it's a few, there are a few different things there. One, I just, I love, I love music. I love it. It's, you know, it's, there's nothing in the world that gets me more excited than, than music and exploring music. And, um, even to the point that I really enjoy challenging myself to learn to love styles of music that I hate. 
uh, <laughs> you know, like they're like new genres will come out and I'll be like, Oh, that sounds so dumb. But I'll be like, all right, you gotta, I gotta figure this out. And I'll, you know, mm-hmm. listen to it exclusively for like two weeks just to kind of figure it out and be like, all right, I guess I'm into this, you know? Um, <laughs> I listened to a 13 hour long playlist with my wife of, I think it was like, like nineties, rave music on a road trip once partially just because i knew she enjoyed it but partially i was like you know this there's probably something here you know 13 hours of that'll that'll rot your brain but um but i don't know and i think keeping it i love the 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 i love constantly it keeps it fresh you know like keeping doing different styles learning different styles of music it's constantly uh, it keeps my job fun and interesting. And that was what my experience when I first started. I was doing commercials. And, you know, one week I would have to, you know, write a reggae track. And the next week I'd have to write a salsa track. And the mm-hmm. next week I'd have to write some, like, Nickelback rock track. <laughs> and that was something, like, I, I loved because you had to just throw away your inhibitions or how you felt about a genre of music, figure out what makes it great and then try to capture that and Mm -hmm. write a track and essentially in a way like fool everybody into thinking you're an expert at this. Right. Um, Which I've honestly, I've done numerous times throughout my career. I've gotten gigs that I don't think I had any business landing and then (laughs) had to just like fake my way through it and be like, Oh yeah, I got this. And then, you know, yeah. uh, Go through it. So I think I just love I love the, the the pressure of learning something new and then being able to apply that to different things you're working on, you know, like the mm-hmm. stuff I've learned writing like electronic music, I would apply to orchestral scoring and and vice versa. You know, there's like there's there are there's a lot of cross pollinating that you can do with different genres and different styles. So and the other thing, I mean the the honest also kind of the honest truth is in Canada while we do have a really exciting post scene here with TV and film and the video game world is mm-hmm. getting really exciting, you do have to be flexible. You can't just do video games. If I just did video games, I would not be able to pay my rent. You know, sure, you have sure. to be able you have to be able to pivot and work on different projects and mm-hmm. um you know, if a movie comes along, you have to be able to handle a movie. If a TV show comes along, you have to be able to handle it. Like, I don't know anyone that's just like, I'm only doing this and that, you know, and that's my gig in, in Canada, at least, just because they're just, sure. it's not, you know, it's not like Los Angeles where there's just, you know, films being made every second of every minute. Right, <laughs> right, right. Where are you in Canada? Are you in Toronto as well? Yeah. Okay. That's one of the yeah. fun things about working moms is getting to see the city a little bit, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I, I love that because I've never been. I've always wanted to go. I have friends. I've, you know, I mean, who doesn't know someone who lives in Toronto? It's like, I would love to visit, but it's it's fun to kind of get to visit through the show, you know? Yeah. And they did a really great job of 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 repping it well. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I loved, like, you know, I love that they didn't pretend it was New York or whatever. Like it was, they were in Toronto and they went to local businesses, they used the local business names, you would see it on the signs. So, you know, like some, there was there was a time I remember I was out with my wife having dinner and then I stopped and I looked around, I'm like, wait a minute, this is 
this is Flock. This is from season one, episode four or whatever. They all <laughs> sat around and had dinner here. And I'm looking around going, oh, geez, that's why it looks you know, familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and then I love when you see like your old neighborhood or your mm-hmm. friend's neighborhood or yeah. like parks that they go to. Mm-hmm. So that, that I really loved. Yeah. You know, being such a, a prolific composer from a pretty young age, really, um, what made you decide to stay in Canada? I'm always, I always ask this question because I love it when people set down, like I'm in Minneapolis. I have no intent. I love Minneapolis. I want to stay in right. You know, so what makes you stay in Toronto rather than, you know, deciding, hey, I need to move to LA or or whatever? Oh, that is a... That is a spicy question. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> no, you know what? So, I mean, I moved to Toronto when I was 19 years old to go to uh, art college, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and From Halifax? Up, from Halifax, correct, okay, yeah. yeah. Which is funny because there is an art college in Halifax, but I just really wanted to get out of Halifax. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, an important Halif- I love Halifax, but mm-hmm. um, I, I deeply love Halifax, but... Uh, yeah. You know, when you're 19, you got to spread your wings. Yes. So I moved here, um, and it was a really hard slog. It was hard to meet people and hard to make friends. I, the first five years here were really difficult. Mm. But then um, I got a job working at Paul's Boutique, which is this really awesome guitar store uh, in a really cool part of town. And that was like, suddenly I now knew every single musician in every single band in Toronto. And that was awesome. And then I made all these friends. And, and then I, you know, I developed a bit of a life here. Now, in 2017, like Los Angeles was never really on our radar until 2017. My wife and I went there for a little stint. We went there for like four days. Mm. And we loved it. We came back. We're yeah. like, we got to go back. That was incredible. That was that like the craziest fun. four days of our life. Yeah. So we got married that summer and then went on a, sort of a honeymoon vacation work sort of uh, thing. I brought a bunch of my gear. We got an Airbnb up in Silver Lake. Uh, we were only going to stay for two months, but then we were loving it so much we stayed for three. Mm. And it was kind of a... Should we do this? You know, should we? Can yeah. we do this? Should we do this? Um, and so I went there and I met with a lot of people and made a ton of friends there. Uh, and it's then we came back and then we had two kids and it is something that has never left my blood. Like I have not been able to shake this feeling. Like we have to go to Los Angeles. We have to go to Los Angeles. And I went and then COVID hit. So everything just got like the momentum just got messed up. Um, and then having kids, it just got really, you know, complicated and, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not totally loving the political climate that's going on. And it just, it just got weird. Yeah. But I was down there about a month about a month ago, and I came back, and I said, to, "I said to my wife, like, we gotta go, man. Like, especially, I gotta do this. Yeah, especially in like March, right? You're yeah. going to LA in March, and then you go back to Toronto. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. And it's it's one of those things where it's just you know, if if we don't do it, it's just gonna bug me for the rest of my life. And it's really tough because I have a really great career in Toronto. Like things sure. are, I really can't complain about." how things are going here. And I, there is a fear that you go to Los Angeles and then you just get lost in the shuffle. And my understanding yeah. is that, you know, doesn't really matter what kind of 
credentials you have in Canada, you can't necessarily just roll into LA and be like, all right, I'm here. Let's do it. Give me a movie. You know, it's like there is, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a hierarchy. A friend of mine described it as a, a city of mob bosses. You've got all your different composers that own certain pieces of the pie. And, and you either have to carve out your piece of the pie, which is really hard, or you have to kind of come up through one of these mob families. Yeah. And you know, I just, part of me feels like I might be too old for that. I don't know if I want to like grind it out being someone's assistant. Like Mm -hmm. I don't, nothing is below me, but uh, I just don't, think that's how I want to spend my days. Uh, right. So I don't really know. I don't, we, we've been trying to figure out a way to make it work. I love Los Angeles so much. Yeah. It hurts me to talk about yeah, it, to be I honest. Love that. I love that place too. People, whenever people complain about it, I'm like, I, mm, I have, I just always have so much fun there. And I think part of it is who, who you do know, right? Who you're going to visit or whatever, mm-hmm. or the vibe you have um, when you're there. But I, I love it there. Yeah. It's oh good, man, it's amazing. We had a rule when we went there. It was uh don't we said yes to everything, no matter what. <laughs> and we we ended up in some crazy some crazy situations. Like and they were all great. We ended up yeah. in in San Diego watching oh, some someone's movie premiere that we would met we had met for 10 minutes at a rooftop party at a hotel in downtown LA that was like right out of Entourage. It was just mm-hmm. like people in swimsuits. My yeah. it was just very weird. Uh, <laughs> like just like tiny bikinis and shredded guys everywhere. We yeah. we ended up at a party at Tom Green's house. We ended up a party up in like the Hollywood Hills. We were ended up at the Magic Castle. Like it was just constant. <laughs> like yeah. and, and we felt there was this feeling where every day we would get in the car. I would work all morning because that was actually where I was where I worked on one of the video games I was working on was uh, Russian Subway Dogs, and I did that in L.A. until about one o'clock and then we would get in the car and we'd be like what direction do you want to drive and we would just go and <laughs> crazy things would happen every yeah. day it was yeah. amazing yeah it's that kind of place for sure uh working moms with the smaller snippets of music i'm curious if you ever and i heard you talk about this too which was i thought was interesting what are you going to spend your time on like don't spend your a bunch of time on a cue that's going to get buried in Foley and other things, but but I'm mm-hmm. curious, like as you're writing these shorter snippets, did you ever have this urge to flesh any of them out or anything? You know, after you wrote it, you're like, God, that'd be a great tune, you know? Yes, actually, <laughs> it, it's, it was really funny too because sometimes we would get people would reach out and be like, Hey, what's that? What was that song in this episode? And be like, Oh, that's it's not a song. It's an eight second right. cue that Maylene and I wrote, and it sounds like a song. I actually yeah. did for for fun once. I took this was years ago. I think it was around season five. I went in and kind of took the greatest hits, like my my favorite cues, and did like this like three minute long kind of like medley, like DJ mix of them all. <laughs> nice. So that it's actually like a three minute long 
like you know greatest hits of working moms, and that was that was around episode five. And season yeah, there five, are yeah. there are keys or sorry, yeah, season five. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it sometimes it does it does sort of bother me that these will only exist in these little bits of these little moments, especially some mm-hmm. of the credits. There were a few cues that we did over the credits that we were really proud of. And then occasionally, there's another thing that would happen, which is sort of funny. We would, they would temp it with my old music. So when we would watch it through to spot it, it would be all old working mom's cues, which <laughs> most of which they all really liked. And yeah. so the game was often like, I would just replace them. Um, but then sometimes they would fall in love with the ones that were in there, which would happen fairly mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. So it was like, can I can I do better than? Can I beat my, my my own cue? You know, <laughs> right, right. Um, but sometimes I would write these cues that I would really love, and they wouldn't. They would be like, you know what? We're going to go with what we tempted with from this other episode you did. And be like, all right, cool. Um, but I would always know that that episode would kind of go in the pool, and then next season it would probably show up in the temp. And, yeah, you know, and. And there were sometimes I would even like send notes. I would send notes to the editors and be like, "This is a really good cue. We didn't use it. Can you like highlight it and just make sure we use it? Because I'm really proud of it and I'd really love to see it." So there were a few cues that you know things like that would happen with. Mm-hmm. But you know, I never got bummed out when cues got thrown out because, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, they they might live on to exist in another episode. So it yeah, was, it was always kind of okay. And and you know. Catherine and Lisa and Phil, the uh, and everyone on the post team were always so. They were all so kind and respectful. Like they would never make you feel bad if they threw out a cue. They'd usually like nice. It was it was almost over overkill. How like, <laughs> you go, Peter, we really love you. I'm really sorry. I think we want to go with the temp. And I'm like it's it's fine. You know the temp is also me. I'm cool with that. Like, yeah, right. But they were always yeah. They were always. Uh, they're always really kind, so it was yeah, it was such a fun project, fun show to work on. I'm, I'm really sad it's over. Yeah, yeah, I was not aware that season seven was the final season. I just, I was given the impression. I feel like from my Netflix screen that said, you know, season seven starts. I think tomorrow, as of this yeah. day that we're talking, I thought there was just to be continued more. But this is the final season. It is, and you know what? It's something. It's it it. It's a bummer because, like I said, it was such a fun show to work on, and yeah. especially man, by the end, everybody on that post team—the mixers, the music supervisors, the editors—you uh, know, Lisa, the associate producer, Catherine Reitman, uh, John—like the whole, the whole crew were. I loved, I loved hanging out with them. They were all so awesome, yeah. but at the same time, I totally respect you know Catherine pulling the plug on it because she wanted it to go out on a high note and I felt like you know the show was as good as it had ever been and you know there's some I hate those shows that just go past their of course you know they 
Yeah. You know, like like Walking Dead, like that that's oh. the show that should have ended at season like four. Yes. You know, and my wife yes. and I still watched it all. Yeah. <laughs> but like you know what I mean? But I mean I respect yeah. like I I think that it takes that takes a certain, you know, amount of courage to pull the plug on something that's comp- that's totally successful. Like, you know, she probably could have yeah. written this for another five seasons if she wanted to, but mm-hmm. she's an incredibly talented, ambitious person. And, you know, I'm sure she has tons of, tons of ideas of other fantastic shows she wants to work on. Right. So it was sad, but at the same time, I get it. And I'm stoked to see what she comes up with after this. Yeah, for sure. But it also sounds like the core team kind of stayed the same through all seven seasons, which I do not think was the case with The Walking Dead, right? Like, I mean, right. that's a unique for the most and special part, thing. Yeah. We the we had a few different editors, but and over the course of the seven seasons, we definitely the editors changed over a little bit. Mm. But even like every single editor on that show I, you know, was awesome. Like I loved yeah. them, and it was really funny because yeah. as a composer, sometimes you get really used to the rhythm of an editor. And then oh, when, for sure. like, I used to, there were some seasons where I could tell who edited what because my music would, I would have to, like, it, it wouldn't, it would fit differently a little yeah, bit as yeah. I was writing it, you know. And, and then the the pace of scenes would always be a little bit different, mm-hmm. but. uh I mean, one of the things I feel lucky about is that I got to meet a handful of amazing editors that I really hope I get to work with again. For sure. Uh, Peter, I'm curious about the pace because, you know, I think people who listen to this show and who are interested in how music is made in various media are aware that the pace is different for TV, games, film. Um, right. What was what was the pace like for for working moms and you know how much time did you have to work on a season and what kinds of things were you getting weekly I mean how did that work The pace was about every week and they were it was usually okay. pretty quick um, so the turnover was fairly fast However so I remember like season one and two and three were because there were growing pains and we were all still kind of like figuring it out. Yeah. I mean, mostly just season one, two, I should say is what, you know, that was, those seasons were definitely difficult because we were still figuring out the sound of the show and we're still figuring out the, you know, the pace of the, of, of, of the schedules. But by the end, uh, like by season seven, by the end of this season, we didn't even spot the episodes anymore we just all trusted each other and we knew how to do it. And so they would just send me the edit with the temp in it. Um, I've been working with this fantastic assistant named Gavin Bradley since season three. He would go through and like pre-spot it for me. So he would just make a spreadsheet of where all those cues are. Mm-hmm. So that when I got down to work, I had a spreadsheet and I knew exactly where the cues were and basically where they put it in the edit, that's where they wanted the music. I would go through, bang out all the tracks, and then often some of the cues I would write them and then send them to Maylee Todd, who who's lived in Los Angeles for the last few years. So I would send it to her. Uh, that would be around noon. She would wake up. It would be nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she right. would get my you know my email, work on it, have it to me by like three o'clock, hmm. and then uh, and then I'd throw it back in my sessions. So mm-hmm. I mean that working moms it. it became a really well-oiled machine, especially by season seven. 
and then when and then they wouldn't even review the music. We would literally then go into the mix, which there were a couple seasons when this was a very terrifying thing because they they were also really busy. Um, so we didn't always have time to review the music. I mean, you know, when you're writing, directing, show running, like that's yeah, that's a that's a a lot. So we would go into the mix, and then they I would also deliver all of the temp stuff as proper stems or Gavin would do it for me, my assistant. And then Mm -hmm. I would also deliver all the new music. So then we would watch the show down. And then if there were any cues that Catherine or Lisa weren't sure about, we would go back and then we would check out the temp one. And then it'd be like, ah, I like the new one. I like the temp one. Can we do this little edit? Blah, blah, blah. So it got, became a real, a really well-oiled machine, um, which was good because I wasn't, there were times when I was working on more than one show at a time. So yeah, uh, it was really helpful to have a, a show. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could have done that, done two shows during season one of Working Moms, but by season, season seven, I could balance Working Moms and another show at the same time. Mm-hmm. And with Maylee, uh, you know, you mentioned how you, you know, mapped her to the keyboard and you made all these samples, but we're, I assume you were just continuously updating that sample bank and having her contribute new material through the end of the show. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So every season we would get together and um, we would just brainstorm. We would just set up a microphone and be like, okay, I wrote down like just a bunch of things like yell yell a bunch of versions of this and that and this and do these yeah. sort of haze and these yas and um one of the most fun things we made was sort of a a Maylee Todd I called it the Maylee Todd Mellotron and it was basically I got her to sing every single note for about two octaves nice doing different vowels so I could actually play her just like you'd hear it sounded a lot like a Mellotron but it was it was Maylee. And so I could play that. And sometimes we would use that, or sometimes I would just use that as a demo. And then I'd send it to Maylee and be like, hey, can you flash this out and replace it? But it gave it like a really cool melody. Like I would often play it the way you would hear a Mellotron, like that sort of, yeah. you know, they used to have to anticipate that like three second rewind kind of thing and so I would sort of play it in that sort of very Beatlesy style which was kind of cool. Nice. Um so yeah, we were always updating it and mm-hmm. and and coming up with new ways to yeah, keep it keep it fresh. So one of the first things I heard from you well, in hindsight, probably the first thing I heard from you was Guacamole when I played that years and years ago. But oh, nice. um but this time around when I like dug into you, the first place I went was Spotify because I, you know, wasn't able at the, that moment to dive into Netflix or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so I listened to uh, Tales from Space, Mutant Blobs Attack, oh, which, yeah. which is a really Thank fun you. score. And I, I just, um, uh, and I know it's like ancient now, 2012 or something like that, but, but it's fun that it's out there on Spotify. And I just wanted to acknowledge that, that I really enjoyed uh, listening to that, to that oh, score. Oh, thank you. That score was, I think it was the second video game I ever did. Okay. Um, and yeah, that score was so fun. It was one of those things where when they showed me the video game, it just clicked. I'm like, I know exactly what we're doing for this. And yeah. it was a mixture of, um, 
like this is a weird thing, but like when I was a kid, I would I was listening to a lot of punk and garage rock and surf rock, but for some reason the surf rock thing sort of opened this gateway into this sort of exotic pre-psychedelic 60s, 50s and 60s, like Martin Denny and Esquivel and Xavier Cugat and a bunch of, you know, Henry Mancini. Like, I don't, I don't really yeah. know why that was a bridgeable Interesting. Yeah. genre, but as a kid, I like, well, as a kid, as a teenager, I listened to tons of that stuff and I loved Esquivel so much. I, I was constantly buying his records at Valley Village anytime I'd see them. And then I started buying the weirder ones on eBay. Um, so when they came to me with that, they're like, I was like, this is the style we're going for. Mm-hmm. And then I also mixed it with that sort of 60s, late 60s sort of switched on synthesizer record kind of idea. So the idea yeah. was you would have this, you know, this these weird, exotic, you know, um, very like Latin influenced scores, but then you'd have this like really corny analog synth going like ding, 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 along with it, which <laughs> I like to sort of think about that moment. They were like, Esquivel, check it out. We just got like this weird new thing. It's called the synthesizer. He's like, I want to put that on, you know, and so then someone goes in and they somehow figure out a way to jam, which so much music from the late 60s has that. Like, what is this Definitely. weird synth doing in this song? You know? So that was, yeah, that was a really fun, fun, fun project, Mm -hmm. which, yeah, ultimately led to um, working on Guacamole with the same company. Yeah, and what a fun uh, couple of games, because you worked on both uh, of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about that, because uh, when you were talking earlier about, you know, what business do I have doing these scores, were you maybe thinking about that? Because... It is weird to hire a Canadian dude to do mariachi, but you, I mean, from what I understand, you had some authenticity uh, helpers there too, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. So that was one of those gigs where they asked me that I remember going, I remember the meeting so well. I went in and they asked me, like, they showed me the game. They're like, hey, yes, we want to do this like mariachi thing. Can you do it? And I was like, oh, yeah, I can definitely do it. Uh, But there was one of those like, it was part of it was drawing from my commercial experience. It was like in yeah. my head, I'm going, I don't know how to do this, but I know that I can go figure it out really exactly. Quick. Uh, yep. Like I have enough faith in and training in how to do that that mm-hmm. I know that I can figure it out. So I did. I in a way, I kind of I don't want to say I bluffed my way through the meeting, but I you know I came out the other side and I had the gig, and then I went home, and uh, yeah, I, I found. Online, the drummer for my old band had a guitarone and a vihuela, so I drove out. He loaned me those. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and learned how to play them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I listened to tons and tons of mariachi of mariachi music and Mexican folk music. Did a bunch of research on it. Learned yeah. like there are all these very like strict rules about mariachi in terms of the instrumentation and what you can and can't have. You know, like okay. you know. 
if you have a six string classical guitar, that's not mariachi. It has to be a vihuela, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. I don't know if that, I don't know if, I don't actually know if that's true, but I do know for sure that you, uh, you cannot, you, if you, it's sacrilege to replace uh, a, 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 a guitar own with anything, any other bass instrument. Like, do not ba- replace that with an upright. Do not replace that with, an, you know. And there are, like, very strict rules about, you know, what is what is considered authentic mariachi and what it, what is just sort of Mexican folk music. Yeah. So I started writing this stuff, and then... Um, they had a gentleman there. Oh man, whose name I forget. He was such a great dude. He was really. Um, I'm gonna kick myself for not being able to shut him out because he was such a nice dude. Uh, but he was from Mexico, and so all of our cues had to go through him. Mm-hmm. Um, because he was like he was there to make sure there was this was authentic, and you know there was no appropriation. Like it, it all had to go through him, and he had to make sure like this is correct. And there were times where he would send stuff back and be like, "You got this wrong. This isn't this isn't actually how the rhythm goes. You know, wow. it has to be like this." Mm-hmm. So that was really awesome. Um, and it was also, you know, that I don't love working on projects where you're incorporating music from other cultures for you know that reason. So to have someone yeah. who were, who was vetting it and making sure that you weren't doing anything awful. Yeah. Um, was yeah. like encouraging, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, it was, it was really, it was a really, really fun project to work on. And uh, so, and I, I should shout out. So Rom DePrisco, so it was myself and Rom DePrisco did the vast majority of yeah. the score together for the first one. And then in the second one, they brought on uh, some guys, I think they were from San Diego called Mariachi, the Mariachi Entertainment System. MES, which was a you know obviously a play on NES, sure, and yeah. their whole thing I, I believe was they would learn covers of classic video game songs but play them like mariachi style. I love that. That's and they, and I actually got to work with them on season or on the on episode or on a the second one mm-hmm. uh, because they ended up covering one of my themes from the first one, so we worked together oh, on that. Cool. And then I also hired them for some live instrumentation of some of my cues. I would send it to them and they sent it back. Nice. And they were also incredibly lovely people, like really, mm-hmm. really kind mm-hmm. and fun to work with. Yeah. Peter, what's your main instrument? How did you start off your musical life? Uh, that's also kind of a complicated question. Um, <laughs> 
piano. So I started piano when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I did this sort of the, the classic practice every day. I had an amazing uh, piano teacher named Analea, who mm. was a... I'm not going to get into it. She was a, a, a conflicted individual, but uh, but she was an amazing, amazing, amazing um, piano teacher. So I studied with her until I was about 12. And then Nirvana performed on SNL. Okay. And that that was, I was saying to someone, like that was my Beatles Ed Sullivan moment. Like when I okay. saw that, I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm never playing piano again. Give me a guitar. <laughs> I'm dumping bleach all over my pants. I'm dyeing my hair. Like this is, it was just like, like my life was completely different after that. You must have so been then in I middle playing. school. Were you in middle school? That, well, yeah, you said 12. Was, that is when you. I was grade seven. Okay. okay. I, I, I specifically remember it was grade yeah. seven because I walked into school that Monday with like freshly destroyed jeans that I really? destroyed myself. And, so and you all were literal. Of, yeah, you literally Oh, yeah, I was like, when I saw that, I mean, I had already known, I knew Nirvana, but yeah. that was the first time I'd seen them. And okay. I was like, oh my God, like yeah. it was just such a big like moment. Yep. So then I got really into playing guitar and then I got really into playing surf rock. I played in a surf rock band all through high school. Hmm. Uh, it was a surf rock trio, very authentic. Well, I wouldn't say it was authentic, but it was very 60s influenced yeah. uh, instrumental surf rock, mostly just influenced by man or Astro man actually. Um, but I would say like, like I said, like that surf rock thing taught me a lot because it was all about melody. You had to, you had to sustain a whole song by writing catchy melodies. And so I learned a lot. And for some reason, like I was saying that spread into this weird world of listening to like, Henry Mancini because like Peter Gunn kind of had like a surf rock thing. And that was like, mm-hmm. a, that was a surf rock standard. So you learned it, but then I started listening. I listened to the whole soundtrack, which I is now embedded in my brain and you know, the pink Panther soundtrack. I'm not all of his soundtracks were my bag, but those two were right. amazing. And then those mm-hmm. led to like the James Bond soundtracks. And like I was saying, oh, you know, and, and, yeah, and that, yeah. yeah. And all that stuff. Um, so I, in a weird way, I feel like that kind of subconsciously influenced me for years. I just didn't realize that it was going to come into play until I was much older. Sure. But then the big moment was when I was about 17, I got a four track. Oh. And my friend, who's a Canadian rapper who goes by Jesse Dangerously, gave me a program called Impulse Tracker which is like this DOS-based sequencing sampling program you could run on a Windows 3.1 computer. It was a bunch of numbers scrolling by. Right? It was yeah. like it, it looked like the it, it looked like the matrix. <laughs> like when you, it's literally that's what it looked like when you were yeah. using it. And I remember once I started playing with that, it was like that was my first taste of producing you know mm-hmm. you could you could record a drum loop and you could loop yeah. it and then you could sample you know i would sample like dennis leary and and, <laughs> and the beatles and yeah. and the specials and elvis costello and i'd make these crazy hip-hop tracks out of them and between that and my four track that was when i like deeply 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 fell in love with the world of production and recording mm-hmm. and it, that's sort of, and now I, like I, I kind of say that you know my main instrument is my studio. Sure. Um, yeah. 
you know, I have a lot of instruments around me, but really it's, I think my studio chops that allows me to make them all sound good because <laughs> I'm not, you know, there's a lot of instruments yeah. in here. I can't play very well, but yeah. you know, yeah. I've got some tricks at my sleeve to for sure. maybe trick, trick a few people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, you know, we, I feel like I got to mention Daft Science and coins right. for sure, because this is mm -hmm. another big part of your life. And, you know, I'm just a tiny bit older than you. So we had a lot of similar musical touchstones, I think, throughout life. Mm -hmm. And um, the Beastie Boys definitely being a huge part of my, you know, early adulthood and, and whatnot. So, um mm -hmm. Talk about Daft Science, which is very cool. Uh, you know, Beastie Boys remixes, but only using Daft Punk samples. So, right. uh, yeah, just talk about that if you would. Yeah, so that was like, honestly, that whole thing was a giant mistake and a giant fluke. Like, it was the most uncontrived like, thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, basically, it all started... Uh, 2014, I actually was looking at my backpack recently. It's got the South by Southwest badge on it from 2014. And I was like, oh my God, it's almost been 10 years since I went to South by that one time. Wow. Um, so it was 2014 and I was on my way to Austin to mm -hmm. DJ for a bunch of my friends who um, I'm friends with a whole bunch of rappers in Toronto uh, and I'll often DJ for them. Mm-hmm. And so they were all there. I was on my own. I landed in Chicago. I had like a three or four hour layover and I was just bored. So I just took out yeah. my laptop and just started like messing around in Logic. And I had these uh, Beastie Boys acapellas because at the time you could download them right off their website. They just put them up there and they're like, remix our stuff. We don't care. And uh, so I had them on my laptop, but I didn't have any of my sample drives with all of my like drums and kicks and snares and stuff. So I was kind of yeah. limited in what I could do. So I just, on a whim, grabbed a Daft Punk track and I just threw it into Logic and I just started chopping it up and just started making this little beat out of it. Um, and I think I just, just kind of played with it for a while and then my plane landed, or my plane came, I landed in Austin and I remember getting in the car and I was like, guys, I gotta play this thing I made in Chicago and I plug it into the aux of the car and everyone in the car is like, what the hell, dude, like, you need to finish this. This is hilarious. Yeah. So I was like, all right, cool. You know, like, at that point, like, girl talk was, like, had already, like, completely blown up. So it was, like, the world of, like, quote, mashups, unquote, was, it, was, it wasn't anything new. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to, I, was, I didn't feel like I was mashing it up. I felt like I was, like, remixing. Like, I was producing new tracks using tiny snippets of these songs. So... I finished the track. I got back to Toronto. I finished the track. Uh, and there was, I had two friends who worked for a graphic design company who uh, I really admired. And I played it for them. And they were like, you need to make an album. If you make an album, we will make the cover art for free. And I was like, okay, I guess that, I mean, I'm not going to turn that down. Let's do it. Right? So, yeah. um, so I spent, because I, I was at that time, I think I just finished. Bomb Girls. Uh, I don't think I had anything lined up. So I had like a few months where I was unemployed. So I just worked on this. It took like it took about three months 
to make it. Um, cause I, I did work on it quite a bit. Um, and then at the end we finished it, we put it up on, uh, Reddit and, and Bandcamp and sent it out to a bunch of blogs and then like nothing happened and nobody cared. And it was the most <laughs> anti-climatic thing I'd ever done. I was just like, well, that was fun. <clears throat> but like my friends all had it and they all loved it, but mm-hmm. it was, you know, yeah, it was a whole, it was a, a, a puff of smoke. And then it was like five years later or four years later, I was lying in bed and suddenly my phone starts blowing up. And someone so had posted it on Reddit, and then it got picked up by Dancing Astronaut. And at that point, Dancing Astronaut was a pretty influential blog. And then all these other people started picking it up. And then it was like within a week, it was full on viral. It was trending on Twitter, it was trending on Facebook. My Bandcamp free downloads were getting maxed out every hour. I had to like keep paying because with Bandcamp, you get a certain amount of free downloads. Mm hmm. And then you have to pay to enable more. And so I had to keep paying money to like keep it free. But I'm like, I don't know what to do here. Like, right. I don't want people to not download it. But right. And it just went completely bonkers. And it got picked up by like Maxim and People magazine. It got covered in Billboard. Like, it was the craziest. Yeah. And I was terrified. I thought I was going to be sued. I was waiting yeah. for the lawyers to call me and just be like, mm-hmm. you're going down. Um, yeah, I was so scared. And then my manager had some kind of back and forth with them where the it sounded like the language they used was not they were not saying it was okay but they weren't saying it wasn't you know yeah, like they yeah. didn't say this it's fine they were just right. kind of like I, I then the message we got was maybe don't make it downloadable and and so that's why it's okay. not downloadable anymore. Okay. I mean, if anyone just emails me, I'll send it to you. I don't, you know. Yeah, I yeah, care, yeah. I, yeah. Do, I, I get about three emails a week asking Amazing. people for a link, and I just give it to them. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, and so it was. It was a crazy thing. It was a. Uh, it's something I'm, you know, I'm proud of. Uh, yeah. And it's it has become a weirdly defining thing in my career, even though it's not. I've never tried to replicated. It doesn't feel like something I could ever replicate. It doesn't seem like, I don't, the first one was such a naive project of just like, yeah, you know, curing some boredom Mm -hmm. Uh, to do it again. I just feel like you can't, it was just luck. You can't tempt that kind of luck. You know what I mean? If you can feel what I'm feeling, then it's a musical masterpiece. Hear what I'm dealing with, and that's cool at least. What's running through my mind comes through in my walk. Two feelings are shown from the way that yeah, I talk. Yeah. But it has opened a lot of doors, you know, since then. It opened up a lot of opportunities and with different projects and different shows and gotten my foot in the door because of the credibility that it has kind of offered offered me, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it's also, you know, for a while it was weird. Like, there were some strange people that would take my calls, which was a little <laughs> bit strange. It was like, oh, people are actually willing to, like... Hang it, like, because we went to Los Angeles right after that, and okay. you know, I, I got in touch with some pretty, some people I wouldn't have thought would let me hang out with them. 
but yeah. and I don't know if that was because of daft science or if that's just because they were cool. They were just nice people. Who yeah, knows? yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, that was daft science. <laughs> no sleep till. What are you working on these days that you can talk right about? Right now, <laughs> yeah, what, what can I talk about? Um, I am working on season. So it's sort of funny in the, what I call the off season. So most of the dramas that I do, so like it's like Work and Moms, The Lake, uh, Sky Med, all those shows for whatever reason, I think they all shoot during the summer, so they all post in the winter. So, mm-hmm. you know, September rolls around and that's when... I'm usually busy with those projects. And then in the summertime, for whatever reason, uh, I have a, a couple of studios that I'll do kind of lifestyle music for. So right now I'm working on some, uh, what I call Reno rock for an upcoming okay. uh, Reno show, which is, I've always, I equate it to scooping ice cream in the summertime. It's just like this easy, it's like, it's not easy, but it's like a nice low stress. I come in and I just like make these, make fun music all day and then send it to them. Yeah. Um, and then I do have, yeah, Sky Med is coming up now. They're shooting Sky Med and we're going to be doing season two of that soon. Okay. And yeah, those are the two main things. Uh, I'm also working on this, uh, 90s pop record that I'm really excited about. It's uh, so when I was working on the lake, uh, a lot of those cues were very. There were there were a bunch of them that were steeped in 90s nostalgia, very Max Martin, Britney Spears style mm-hmm. production and, and songwriting. Okay, um, a lot of the the cues in that were very pop. Like they they sounded like snippets of pop songs, and I worked with this. Uh, great uh this great singer songwriter on a handful of them named alex i hope i get her last name i always get it wrong alex petkovsky it's a bit of a mouthful uh and she's really she's an incredible songwriter and really uh yeah just super talented and so we worked on these songs that sound like full-on britney tracks and when we were finished the lake when i was finished the lake i Talk to her, I'm like, should we just make a record? Because I think we would be really good at this. <laughs> so we're making an album. Nice. We've got, we got three kind of going right now of just really authentic sounding 90s pop. I love that. Um, I ended up acquiring a bunch of the, the equipment that they used to make those. So it's got a really authentic vibe to the, yeah. to the production. And part of it, too, is I realized, like, there was never – if you want to license a, a, a 90s song in a TV show, you're probably going to pay a lot of money for it because yeah. all the 90 like because all the 90s songs are these big hits, right? right. There was never like an, an indie bedroom producer movement of people flooding the market with like mm-hmm. indie 90s pop songs like that never <laughs> happened. So there just aren't a lot of them, right? Yeah. So we kind of had this idea like we could probably license these to TV shows and yes, you know, probably like get them out there that way because I don't think there are a lot of options if you want to license an authentic sounding nineties nineties right. jam, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the other thing I'm working on right now, which fun. is uh, really fun. It is so fun. It's like one of the most fun things I've ever done. It's just, <laughs> it's so over the top. It's hilarious. Yeah, 
I mean, 90s pop is pop, right? I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just uh, bubbly and, I mean, because the 80s didn't sound, obviously, nothing like that. And the 2000s were, in, I mean, it's just so pop, right? I mean, yeah, I don't know. It is, you know what's funny? It is, and I hate to say this because I don't want to be like a gear nerd, but a lot of it was dictated by the equipment they were using. And that mm. is, you know, if you look at the 80s, all these new synthesizers are coming out. So they're yeah. all using, you know, the, the big analog, the Mugs, the Rolands, the Jupiters, and then you've got mm. the DX7s coming out and, you know, the Synclavs. And just like, it's, so you hear, like when I hear those sounds, I can, I'm really good at reproducing those because like I know exactly the, the stuff they're using. Yeah. But when the 90s rolled around, the reason those songs all sound that way is they're all using the same 10 pieces of gear, it's and those pieces of gear have pre-programmed like drums, like kicks and snares and samples in them. You know, so you're so talking I got about these, hardware, like, hardware. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So like things like the Roland JV1080, the the Emu Planet Fat, the Emu Orbit. I've got a bunch of them here. The old like Korgs and the M1. Like they all have these presets in them that, and everyone was just using them over and over and over again, which is why like all they all use the same snare sound and the same clap in all of them. They all use these stupid scratches. Like, so when, (laughs) so in order to do it, you actually need to have these pieces of equipment to actually make it sound that way. And that's the thing that really defined, you know, if you listen to a Backstreet Boys track Mm -hmm. versus an InSync track versus a Britney track, they're mm-hmm. like they all have the same yes sound because they're all using the same you know basically the same sample libraries essentially is what they're right, doing right so i don't know Crazy. and i'm fascinated by that yep yep well peter i mean i could keep going but uh uh we'll just have to do this again sometime totally anytime um, man this was fantastic yeah this has been great and um I just, yeah, I look forward to whatever's next and whatever's still happening and all the things. So thank you so much for all of your time today. Is there any, Awesome. Thank you for having me. Is there anything else you want to add before, you know, I don't mean to just abruptly pull the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think we covered all the exciting stuff. Okay. I'm glad that I got to shout out my pop record. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I can't wait to hear it. Like, it's I really, can't wait it's to very hear funny. it. Do you, do you have a, a, like a time you're aiming for to, to be done with it? No, the no, problem is just, that yeah. my, both myself and Alex are both, we're both really busy. She's, she's doing really well. She does uh, a lot of music placements and like mm. selling sunset and all those like awesome kind of like cool LA based reality shows. And she's, she seems, she's very busy. Um, mm-hmm. So it's sort of something that we're both doing on our free time. Sure. So I don't know. I was hoping we could get it out in a few months, but it probably won't come out for like a year. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll keep my eyes and ears out. Um, totally. Thank you so much, Peter. Awesome. Thank you so much. Get out of my way. Get out of my way. Yeah. Get out of my way. 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 Yeah. Get out of my way. Get out of my way. I'm a hustler. 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 I'm a
Thank you for listening to Level with Emily. You can learn more about Peter Chapman, see a playlist, and support Level with Emily at patreon.com slash level, or just check the show notes. And check out the video of my chat with Peter on the Level with Emily YouTube channel. Please do subscribe to that channel so you don't miss out on any videos, get notifications, all that stuff. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, hello. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services. Composer Brad Gentle manages our YouTube channel. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media, Inc. Here at Level with Emily, we're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. It features a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. You can hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.